You know, these narratives, they are opportunities, huge untapped opportunities for developing how the students think, not what they think. And, and that's really the mission. We want to dive into those narratives and really understand what it means and, and then paint a picture on both sides. Hello, I'm Bruce Berman, the host of Understanding IP Matters, a podcast series that looks at how IP rights affect creators and impact businesses. Understanding IP Matters episodes are available wherever podcasts are streamed and on understandingip.org. Inventions, brands, and content such as music and images are more relevant to success than ever, but copying them is easier today. For that and other reasons, IP rights need to be on people's radar. Entrepreneurs, creators of all types, investors, and students are among those who need to be aware of how IP impacts them, the economy, and society. But what and how much do they need to know? To answer that question, Understanding IP Matters welcomes two innovative IP educators. They believe IP rights need to be more widely appreciated. Both have a good awareness of how to get there. Ruth Sotendorp has been teaching students about IP rights for more than 30 years. She is Professor Emeretta at Bournemouth University, where she taught law and is Associate Director of the Center for IP Policy and Management. She is a visiting lecturer at Bayes Business School, City University of London, and was until recently visiting professor of the University of Arts, London. Our new book, Teaching Intellectual Property, Law, Strategy, and Management, will be published in a few weeks. James Connolly is a member of the prestigious National Academy of Inventors. He is also a clinical professor of technology at Northwestern University, serving on the faculty of both Kellogg School of Management and the McCormick School of Engineering. Professor Connolly is an advocate of IP education for business students and executives and leads seminars globally. His research investigates the strategic use of intellectual property to build and sustain competitive advantage. Welcome Ruth from London and James from Chicago. Ruth, you've been teaching students of all types about IP rights for more than 30 years. Has your approach changed over that time? Uh, yes, yes. Um, I think I must have started thinking that I want them to know what I know and being very unhappy at having to deprive them of anything that I had learnt that I couldn't squeeze into the time I had with them. So it was very much me focused. I think what hasn't changed is my absolute conviction that the people who create intellectual property rights have as much, if not more, of a need to be uh, informed about intellectual property rights as the people who are advising. So it's non-lawyers have, have occupied a lot of my kind of teaching interest. What's changed is that I've moved uh, in that terribly long period of over 30 years to thinking it's not telling them what I know. It's not even telling them what they need to know. It's helping them to ask the questions they need to ask to be able to find out what they are going to need to know when they're going to need it. James, do you find uh, what you're teaching today is different from what you taught, say, 20 years ago? Yes. I think it's largely because of the activities of centers 
like yours and the legacy of the pathbreaking teaching that that Ruth did over time. Uh, and, and so, what is the legacy of that? Well, of course, you've your efforts and the efforts of many others, Ruth included, have have raised the significance of these intellectual property rights. It's coincident with the evolution of intangible value, people recognizing that intangibles add value, they are indeed ownable. So, you know, the way that we teach this has moved from, hey, this stuff is out there to, hey, it's yours. Mm. You own it. Ownership and agency come together to empower you. And and so this is the evolution that I think Ruth was speaking to, to some extent. It's one that I've clearly uh, embraced and adopted in, in my teaching. You're both taking the high road, if you will. You know, you're saying, you know, it's important. This stuff's important. You need to learn it. Uh, it. It'll empower you. And yet there's this hostility to IP rights on the part of creators and and uh, even the public. Uh, you know, what what do you attribute that to and how do you deal with that, James? Well, I, I attribute that to the, the struggle for independence and uh, self-agency that is you know, you know, part of the, the the promise of liberal democracies. Liberal democracies empower the individual. You are accountable to yourself. And to the extent that you use your mind to actually do something that advances the human condition, we as the government are going to give you these rights. All right. Now that posture of empowering the individual and giving them rights in a manner that may not look to be something that everyone immediately benefits from is the source of tension mm-hmm. and, and this this grand bargain is one that we're constantly revisiting i mean these democracies i think who knows the history here some of them have said oh we don't want these ip rights away they move away from them but never has anyone done that but when they haven't come back you know they say oh maybe that experiment of not having this incentive system this grand bargain wasn't so good so the tension is natural and we just have to learn to navigate it I'll come from a, a sort of more um, specific example. I think the, the hostility is there firstly because um, most people don't perceive the intellectual property right as something they can have for themselves without having to go through uh, the agency of an uh, intellectual property advisor. It's tied up with law, in, and I think law from the perspective of mine as a student of uh, with working with business studies students rather than law students uh, there's a, there's a built-in uh, aversion to law a fear of it and it needs demystifying in order to uh, make the intellectual property aspect more accessible. One clear example, I had three years as the visiting professor at the University of the Arts, and I was shocked um, by the complete um, absence of any kind of curiosity in most of the people I came across, um, students and the, and the teachers, about intellectual property. So if you went to a, an exhibition of students' work, fabulous stuff, and their Instagram um, uh, contacts were there, their, their Facebook, their, all their uh, social media contacts were, were on display, and never a copyright name, year, the simplest of things to just alert people who were interested from a commercial 
own perspective uh, in what they were doing. And the people who have got the job of teaching IP at an arts university have got to overcome a massive barrier. Uh, and I, I was quite surprised at that. You know, it seems like intellectual property is for, you know, owners and, and especially uh, successful owners. And it doesn't really benefit other people or it seems that way at, at times. Lawyers need to learn intellectual property law, you know, precisely because they're going to practice. Uh, but business executives and creators need to learn how to use the IP system. Yeah. James, what, what's your experience with that difference? You're not a lawyer, of course. You're a physicist and inventor. Actually, a nuclear engineer. But yes. So what Ruth's speaking to and your follow-up question, in my mind, identify the difference between value add and value capture. When we train the students of the arts, and, and here I'm, I'm not speaking as someone with experience, I'm just imagining it based on what I know about similar programs here in the United States. But when we train them, we're training them to add value, be creative, do something different. And the entire curriculum is focused on making them generative. And, and what we're not doing is teaching them how to capture the value that they have added. So what um, I think we we need to focus on within education uh, is is to add that bit about capturing the value. Maybe we don't make them uh, as savvy as the lawyers about the rules of the game, but they need to know enough about it so that they can learn how to think about value capture separate from value add. They've also got to uh, understand and in. Uh, internalize, integrate that for themselves, that value is something they're interested in. And, uh, you know, it's difficult to face a group of people who, who will sort of, um, they'll listen with curiosity, but they can't quite see the, the value added as being relevant to them. Very pleased to have come across one example in, in the arts, uh, experience of Uriel. There's a chap I don't know if you've heard called Harris Reed. He's an androgynous, um, character who is, uh, a very successful dress designer, fashion and jewelry designer. And he's a graduate, recent graduate of the arts university. And he has now been appointed as the director, I think, at Nina Ricci one of the you know, big haute couture houses in Paris. And if you look at Harris Reed, he has um, registered trademarks from before he registered himself as a student at the Arts University. So it was being very good to have an example to show to the students. And in fact, one of the things they fear is that intellectual property engagement might diminish their creativity. You know, it's something they're going down a route that's going to sort of inhibit the, the free um, expression that, they, uh, that they're enjoying. IP is for, for lawyers. It's not for uh, creators. It's not for us. Yes. Not yes. for us, which is the biggest mistake. Of course, some of the rock legends and celebrities like Prince yeah. uh, were quite the, the IP mavens. Uh, Prince had, uh, he had patents. He had many copyrights. He, he took his masters back from, uh, he changed his name actually because yeah. the name was owned by one of his labels. He was really quite astute. That's why the this Warhol case in the uh, Supreme Court is really uh, important. It's fair use case, yes. and it involves Prince uh, indirectly. James, how did you get involved in teaching IP? How did that happen? My path to the academy is uh, 
non-traditional, as, as you mentioned, Bruce. I'm really a, a physicist, actually a nuclear engineer. Also got a PhD in material science. So I spent a lot of time working in industry eight years in Japan, all over the world, designing uh-huh. things, automotive engines specifically, and small power plants. And, and the last product that we developed was very unusual in that it took four-stroke engine technology and it put it on a, four, on a piece of handheld power equipment. And the basic idea of combining the four-stroke with a piece of handheld power equipment was, believe it or not, novel. No one had ever even thought of that. That whole experience brought me into the world of IP. I somehow got convinced to come back to the academy. I needed a course to teach, my own course. In that whole mess, I met Jerry Lemelson. And he called me every single day, seven days a week. He was a serial inventor. (laughs) And, um, you know, he said, Jim, I got this idea. And all he really wanted to do was discuss all this stuff. And I began to hear the mind of the inventor. And it it resonated with me. And I wanted to create a course that sort of captured some of his thinking. And So that's how I came into it. I was actually a faculty of the engineering school when I created this first course. Uh, And it was for undergraduates and graduates. But we had so much success licensing this technology on the business side that the business school became interested in what I was doing. These were my own inventions, some things that I developed with Cherry. So it was my path to the classroom was um, not strictly academic. It was more practical, mm-hmm. but it did have to do with the th- essence of engineering and combination and the invention that Cherry uh, shared with me. Mm-hmm. Ruth, you studied law. But you didn't practice uh, as a lawyer. Uh, so how did you uh, evolve into a, a pedagogue? <laughs> um, well, I think listening, listening to, to James' um, experience of marrying his um, engineering and his scientific background with his IP teaching, I had something the same, but it, I, it wasn't my background. It was the background of, of the uh, people I engaged myself with. I, why didn't I become a, a lawyer in practice? Because uh, over 30 years ago, when you had small children and you wanted to train professionally, um, you had to, it was something that was very, very difficult to combine. So I started my um teaching part-time. I was teaching law and politics and I did my master's and when I was doing my master's I saw an advert on the wall uh, and this is sort of uh, late 80s, um, come and study a postgraduate diploma in IP at Queen Mary University of London. And I said to my husband, can we afford for me to do one more course? And he said, oh, all right then. And um, I told the university where I was just a part-time teacher when they heard that uh, and I said, this is going to be big. I said, I feel this is going to be big. I got an established post. That was my first teaching post. And it coincided with the 90s building up to the turn of the century. The 90s in the United Kingdom, I don't know about the States, was a time for reviewing higher education, lock, stock and barrel. Tony Blair was very keen on um, employability and um, business-related elements coming into otherwise you know, programs that never had them. And um, so at Bournemouth University, all the faculties were looking at how to make their students more employable. I got the patent office, the, the UK IPO, to give me a grant to let me offer an hour of intellectual property to every program in the campus. And 50% of all the programs took me up on the offer. And that started this idea of getting IP 
out there. Um, and it was a very interesting experience. The most fruitful connection from that was uh, with the product design engineers. And I think, I don't know if James has found this too, um, IP education owes a lot to IP enthusiasts. That's the phrase that Jeremy Phillips, who's a started the IP cat, if you know it, in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it owes a lot to finding a kindred spirit, somebody else who sees the, the benefit. And uh, in the product design um, department, the head of the faculty there, you know, he could see what I was banging on about and was very supportive. And that's how we, we developed a program. Ruth, you have a new book coming out in a few weeks uh, called yes. Teaching Intellectual Property Law strategy and management, but it's not just for lawyers, I, I don't think. No. What was the impetus to publish it at this time? What? Why is it timely? Why is it timely? It's timely because the publisher wanted to publish it. The publisher, <laughs> the publisher Edward Elgar, uh, has um, a number of teaching uh, books out, teaching this, that, and the other, wanted to teach and thought that IP law is one to teach and uh, approached a, the, my colleague and my colleague said I would like to do it if I can do it with Ruth and I said I don't I can't see a, just another book teaching law as being um, as useful as something that acknowledges right from the title that it's not just about teaching law it's a, it's teaching the strategy of IP law the management of IP law people who are teaching law in law schools have contributed and will be using it and people who are teaching law in uh, IP law in other or IP strategy and management in other faculties have contributed to it and will be using it have you seen an increase in teaching IP law in other faculties? I've seen it, so not as much as I would like. I, I was, as I said, very um, happy to have found a little niche at City University um, where they've given me the opportunity. I, I work with undergraduates and I work with uh, postgraduates. And that was, again, this coming together of... Enthusiasts, you know, somebody saw me as being an, an enthusiast and and responded. Getting that to travel across uh, to other universities is slow. What you've got more of is where there are people in a law faculty teaching IP law. They are, I think, gradually being uh, discovered. They're being sought out. James, do you see an increase in teaching IP in other faculties other than law? I started in the engineering school, mm -hmm. uh, and then I made my way to the, the business school. Each and every university has its own um, governance challenges and contexts. I'm sure that the situation is different at Bournemouth and at the uh, City University of the Arts than it is at Northwestern. But at Northwestern, it turns out that the budget of the business school is completely independent of the budget of the central administration. So we can experiment a lot more here than the medical school, all these other schools that are governed by the central administration. So I went to the place where I had more, you know, flexibility with funds. And then I could experiment more. Okay, let's now with this flexibility, let's do something for the medical school. Let's do something for the engineering school. Let's do something for in conjunction with the law school. I had to find a great partner. In my case, it was Clinton Francis, who's a distinguished professor of law at Northwestern. He said, James, we're going to do this together. We're going to figure out how to, uh, you know, make this topic and these topics that Ruth is talking about 
not just the law, the case law, the, the interpreting the doctrine and all that, but the actual use of it. How does this become more powerful in a negotiation? How does this become more powerful in extending your advantage to wholly new market opportunities? That bit I did in conjunction with the lawyers, but then I had to translate it into uh, the language of the, the physicians, the language of all the PhD students of the university who I also teach, the language of the engineers I had to come back and teach it in another way. Once that translation was done, the courses took on the life of their own. So what's on your syllabus, say, for, uh, you, you're, there are two courses you teach, I don't recall the titles. Uh, one is a management course. Uh, what are some of the topics you, you go into? So it, it depends on the course, but let me just give you a high-level uh, example of what that is. In the first lecture, I'm going to introduce them to the topic in what I call the centimeter-deep, kilometer-wide view of opportunity, you know, innovation is one way, one of the three principal ways to actually compete in any particular market context. And, and, and each of us in our various professions, journalism in your case, Bruce, um, in, in, in my case, engineering, <clears throat> the law in, in Ruth's case, we're looking for ways to be different. And it, it's important to understand in that first lecture why difference is important. Then in the subsequent lectures, I take them through the language of accounting into the properties. So I start with the intangible. What what is the technical, the technological intangible? Oh my gosh, there's these things, patents, three different kinds. What is what is the story intangible? That's another lecture. That turns out that's marketing collateral. That's everything that is in our media copyright. And then what is the brand intangible? And how does this really become something powerful that we own? It's ours. It's our agency. Okay. In the entrepreneur course, you have to do that in one way. In the mature uh, firm course, you have to do it in another. You know, so people that go to work for Google inherit a brand. Okay, they're not creating a brand. In the entrepreneur course, mm -hmm. you've got to use the example of uh, Sarah Blakely and Spanx. Mm -hmm. She invented the tech solution and she invented the brand, right? But she did it all in a, in a resource-constrained uh, environment. So, you know, these are the basic tenets of the whole thing. We do another thing on trade secrets. We do another thing on bibliometrics and valuation, but this is gen generally the syllabus. Mm -hmm. And Ruth, what, what's on your syllabi? <laughs> it sounds a little bit more prosaic. It's a module that's divided par part and part between the basic rules. What's the minimum you need to know for patents and trademarks, designs and copyrights, and uh, trade secrets and confidentiality. And I make sure that every um, module begins with the lecture on uh, confidentiality and uh, trade secrets, because I think that underpins everything we do and underpins everything to do with the uh, intellectual property. And then um, we're looking at uh, how does this uh, manifest um, licensing as the tool to actually um, realize value from the uh, what you've created and the responsibilities you have in respect of it in the um, in in business since George Floyd actually um, I have um, made sure that uh, ethics uh, and uh, decolonializing the syllabus has become a part of the program um, with getting more attention than it, it, it it used to have, I used to mention it sort of in passing, and now it's a, a full lecture and I get student contributions. Um, 
to uh, to ethics and sort of bringing examples from their own experience of unethical use. And we have uh, a number of uh, people who contribute uh, guests lectures to it from the field of their experience, and that has proved to be very very successful. Do the anti-IP narratives, uh, patent trolls and such, make it harder to deliver a positive IP message? I think it's important to to include when you're speaking about patents in particular that there is a negative side. There is a side. There is, um, you know, there is an argument to not to patent. But the important thing in all of intellectual property is you're doing something from an informed basis. The, the the great enthusiasm I've noticed over the past few years for doing a module like I uh, offer at, at City is that the students do see themselves certainly on a business course um, being there not necessarily being employed but running their own businesses and their own businesses being IP based software based and so on so I think that that's another thing that that has changed. There seems to be a, a, a free-for-all uh, mentality, especially among Gen Zers, uh, which, you know, while business students are perhaps more motivated to capture value, um, the feeling is that, uh, you know, a lot of things should be free. They are free. Uh, everything is sort of fair use. Uh, additionally, uh, as I learned recently, the so-called uh, Unicorns, uh, there are about 60 of them or so still, billion-dollar companies, usually startups. They, um, if they're involved in the internet, e-commerce, or software, they probably have few or no patents. They may rely on trade secrets and other things, but it doesn't seem like IP is that important or that necessary to enforce. You know, these narratives, they are opportunities, huge untapped opportunities for developing how the students think, not what they think. Mm -hmm. And and that's really the mission, at least, of, of our programs at, at Northwestern and Kellogg. We want to dive into those narratives and really understand what it means and, and then paint a picture on both sides. And, you know, it isn't my job as the faculty member to tell you which one is right. But in, in the real world, these narratives are powerful. They are going to come at you with more and more frequency. Figuring out how to deal with them is your job. Ruth? No, I just want to come back to what I said right at the very beginning uh, when you asked me about how things have changed from my perspective of teaching, seeing of questioning and questions. The way we're teaching, we're uh, getting the students to acknowledge that knowing what to ask or, or what to ask about or what are the, the questions that are, kind of, that are going to prompt them uh, finding their way through um, in intellectual property to the decisions they're going to make is really, really crucial. I mean, we have one of the ass assessments for the uh, postgraduate group is that they, as a small group, they team up with the uh, launch lab uh, function at uh, a city where startup companies join the university to get support and uh, a small group will advise um, a volunteer uh, launch lab client on their intellectual property and part of what they're being assessed on is the initial questions that they devise to ask their client um, because the answers are, are available yeah. Mm -hmm. To your point about how it, it seems that everything should be free, 
The way that I very quickly diffuse that in the first lecture of the course mm -hmm. that I give is I ask them, okay, you're all on TikTok, you're on Instagram. Do you know what you have to agree to in order to get this software? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, then, then nobody knows. I said, okay, go look for it. Nobody can find it. And then I show them uh, exactly what the language is. And the language says explicitly that we want your intellectual property. You're going to make yeah. us a license to this worldwide, royalty-free, irrevocable. Every wild card that the law school can dream of is in that contract. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then that then it becomes important evident to them that their creativity is important. And they and and by signing mm -hmm. up and checking the box, yep. they're surrendering value capture to the platform. We, we've got one thing absolutely in common. I think when I do the licensing section of, of the module, what their task is to go away and choose their favorite platform, look at the uh, terms and conditions, and come back with sort of a half a dozen terms that have either surprised or shocked or whatever them. They compare these, share these, and come to the the kind of conclusions that, uh, that you're uh, talking about, James, uh, shock and horror. Yeah, th these these platforms don't work without your consent. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, the first time I did this a couple of years ago, um, nobody talked about Facebook. And I sort of said, well, hang on a second, what about Facebook? And they just sort of looked at me and said, Facebook is only for talking to our mothers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why I use TikTok. Yes, yes. Sorry. You, you know, there should be something uh, somewhere on the ethics of IP, aside from the what's legal and what isn't, it's not very clear what good IP behavior is. What good IP behavior is for shareholders may differ from what good IP behavior is for legally and, and, and ethically and otherwise. Uh, I, I don't think much attention is paid to that. Who's a good IP citizen as a, as a business or as an individual? In fashion, you had some very interesting examples of um, the the big houses uh, taking over from Inuit and from South America. And you've got Nike has been involved in in cases, um, and and on branding, you've got very clear examples. I think, um, and and the, uh, the the fashion the fashion industry certainly is waking up to the fact that it it has to be ethical in uh, where it gets its inspiration. I, I'm thinking Earth, of ethical in, in the context of efficient infringement, where you can right. you can really uh, litigate uh, an, an opponent to death. Well, that certainly is a marketplace reality. Mm -hmm. Capital will flow in the directions you know where it can capture the most value. Um, I mean, this is downstream of Lincoln's the fuel of interest flowing to the fire of genius, and sometimes the fire of genius is one that actually anticipates how uh, how much a resource-poor IP owner will be able to defend themselves. And unless there's some kind of mitigating force with contingency fee attorney, in some cases it's some embodiment of this Burford Capital Company that will, you know, litigation finance. Uh, ethics is, a, is, is such an important uh, topic, Bruce, but remember that we are training people in the law school, and this, again, I'm not a faculty of law, so I'm speaking, as someone who's observing it, to be advocates of any logical discourse that can come out of the human mouth. And it does not even have to be right. They just want to be able to argue it with a straight face. And this is the way they're professionally trained. Quite frankly, it's how they're professionally hired. 
I'm not sure if you're seeing what's going on in law schools these days, but it's unbelievably what I would call unethical, rude behavior, especially to to what I would call invited speakers. <laughs> Shockingly so. Yes, just look up what happened at Stanford last week to a federal circuit judge. And this, this, those people are, are suddenly going to look like they can make an argument, even when it's rude. And uh, listen, this is my view. They're going to somehow be valuable for those firms that are advocates first, ethically responsible people second. And, and ethics is a local thing. It's one thing in my culture. It's another in yours. And so this is subjective, not just objective. That, that's quite that's quite a shock, actually. Um, and this is not IP exclusive. This is law school and approaches to no, it's, uh, it's happened at our practice. top law schools, Yale, which is supposed to be the best. Really? Uh, Stanford. Again, this is the the forum for advocacy. So if you can begin to go down the line of argument and, and use whatever persuasive means you have at your disposal to make a point, you do. And that's how we're training our, our legal friends. This just creates conflicts. So, James, what would you like your students to come away with, your business students, say? what If, if you do your job well, what how what will they be equipped to to do or, or to think? Well, I want them to know about this system, which in the context of this marketplace, the United States, is constitutional. Mm-hmm. It, it derives from what is the mainland European experience, the whole system. It comes from the philosophy of John Locke. I want them to know that. Then, with an understanding of that, I want them to see opportunity. When you innovate, when you create, when you create a reliable firm that has a strong trademark, you would get these legal rights. And, and these things give you opportunity. But you have to have them on your radar. You have to know when to act. And I will fill the course and their memory with contexts whereby people acted well and they acted not so well. In that narrative, ethics will be present, especially when we're talking about pharmaceuticals. And you know, where India has the whole national shadow of Indira Gandhi when she pointed to the pharmaceutical industry and said, those that profiteer in the business of life and death. I mean, this cat's a big shadow across ethical decisions in that context. So I want them to know that this is there. And it's, it, it is constitutionally granted to them. And it, it is their opportunity to use it, to s- dismiss it, not use it, whatever. That's their choice. And not necessarily, with all due respect to lawyers, not necessarily to rely on lawyers to sort of tell you what to do or tell you what you can do, perhaps. But it, as a creator or, or an entrepreneur, I think your your agenda may be somewhat different from that of uh, a law firm. I, I think that uh, the students that, that leave um, um, my module, I hope, uh, have had their eyes opened uh, in an area where they were they thought uh, they either knew nothing or they knew they thought they knew something, and that they've got the confidence that when they uh, in, engage in in their own businesses or um, when they go and perhaps join somewhere where they are the person who knows the most about IP, uh, because there is such a, a dearth of knowledge about it, that they'll have the confidence to sort of speak up and say this is something that's worth paying attention to, to people who are perhaps senior to them um, and will lead the way in asking questions and, um, you know, taking the general awareness of IP forward. If it doesn't become something intrinsic and personal to uh, to a student, then it's not going to be very 
significant. I think both our programs sound as if they've got in common is that people come away with them realizing that you know this thing ip uh has got such a contribution to make and through them to society because that's really what we're on about as well what would you say ruth to a first-time ip teacher what should they be aware of a first-time ip teacher i would say that uh um, if you can um, start off with the importance of confidentiality, that resonates with the notion of esteem. And I think intellectual property uh, rights are an aspect of esteem and self-esteem. If you've got no knowledge about your uh, uh, that, your, that aspect of your life, you know the the rights that. that uh, evolve from what you create, then your own kind of uh, self-awareness and so on is diminished. So I think if, if the first timer mm-hmm. facing the student have that in the back of your, their mind that what they're part of is part of the creation of self-esteem of this sort of burgeoning entrepreneur and the more they understand ip the more they kind of are prepared to ask the questions about ip the greater their self-worth will grow i think ruth has given a beautiful expression to it i'll restate her word self-awareness confidence and and route that back into where we began agency yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you, you, at least in the United States, you come to a university, spend a tremendous amount of money. It's a big investment. And, and, and what you should come away with is your own individual ability to act. And in fact, here, become an owner, an owner of something that is a difference that will make a difference on so many different levels. Yes, you should start with an understanding of confidentiality because in the business logic, uh, information asymmetry is very powerful. But you should map it into all of these different environments and you will learn through those environments. So that's, that's what I want them to know. You're going to come into this course. Um, we're going to teach you, uh, things that are going to make you more self-aware, more confident and more empowered by your agency. And to the first time instructors, I would say there's so much material out here and so many faculty who have made this migration. So just from my lab, David Orozco, Dan Brown. Alexander Krasnikov, they're all over the planet. And they now are the next generation who can take you on this path. You're teaching the IP system and, and yeah. what IP well, the means and how it works. Legal foundation, which we need. Very essential. But that's a different thing than what, what I, at least I teach very much. Yeah. Ruth, any final words? We're almost out of time. I, th- I think one of the biggest challenges uh, with with my t- I find in teaching and I found with the, my contributions to the book is what is the minimum law that you can include how can you boil it down to, to the to the very uh the very very least that won't frighten them <laughs> that they can understand and that they can use and that they can then kind of build their uh their questioning and their inquiry and their development on excellent well thank you both very much this has been very informative I look forward to reading your your book, Ruth and James, to uh, to hearing uh, more from you. And uh, yeah, I just have to get a little plug for the IP Awareness Summit in Boston on May second. Uh, James will be there virtually, and Ruth, I th- I think you hopefully will be there virtually uh, as well. Thank you, Bruce and Ruth. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. 
Understanding IP Matters is brought to you by the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding, an independent nonprofit and its supporters. Listen to episodes at understandingip.org or wherever you stream your podcasts. Follow SIPU on LinkedIn and Twitter. We welcome your comments and suggestions. Contact us at explore at understandingip.org. This episode was produced and edited by Nathan Tower at Nonsensible Productions. Content conveyed is for informational purposes only and does not reflect the views of SIPU or its affiliates. <laughs>